Welcome to the Backyard Professor Responds. I want to respond to Sandra Tanner's article, booklet as it were, Mormonism Like Watergate, but it's not the response you're going to expect. Let's get started. last part of that introduction, we want the truth and we shall find it of real history, not invented history, definitely applies to this response to Sandra Tanner, Gerald and Sandra Tanner. 1974, they wrote a book, Mormonism Like Watergate. Let me explain what I find in this that is so incredibly interesting. On October 7th, 1973, the Salt Lake Tribune published an article written by John William Fitzgerald in which he accused the Mormon church of a cover-up similar to that of the Watergate affair. This article must have come as quite a shock to the Mormon leaders back in the 1970s. It probably was. The very morning that it appeared, Harold B. Lee, the 11th president of the Mormon church, arose in general conference and made these statements. But some of the greatest of our enemies are those within our own ranks. A few years ago, we had a woman who had written some scurrilous things about the prophet Joseph Smith. I'm sure he's talking about Fawn Brody and probably Sandra Tanner. And then they quote President George Albert Smith, who said, Many have belittled Joseph Smith, but those who have will be forgotten in the remains of Mother Earth, and the odor of their infamy will ever be with them. We have had some who, writing in the public press occasionally, are among those who have fallen by the wayside. They be foul, the honored name, family names that they have. They have disgraced the honors that we have given of them in times past. They are trying to join the forces of the enemy against the work of the Lord. And we can say to them, as President George Albert Smith said then, those who will those who have done so will be forgotten in the remains of Mother Earth, and the odor of the infamy will ever be with them, but honor, majesty, and fidelity to God, exemplified by the leaders of this church and attached to their names, will never die. I mean, such majesty, you know. What he's doing here is he's blaming the victims. The problem is not that there be smirching the name of Joseph Smith and the leaders of the church. The problem is they're putting back the full history of what happened that these leaders have taken out in order to give 
a saintly appearance to Joseph Smith when their efforts to make Joseph Smith appear so saintly is where the problem lies. They're victim blaming. They're making the historians the enemies when they themselves are the enemies. Let me show you what the, the Tanners discovered. Before getting into trouble with the Mormon leaders, Dr. Fitzgerald had served for over 20 years as the Mormon chaplain in the Utah National Guard. His master's thesis written at Brigham Young University was entitled A Study of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it so impressed the church that one of the general authorities had him write an article in the church's magazine, The Improvement Era. At any rate, Dr. Fitzgerald could not accept the anti-Negro doctrine, and when the Joseph Smith papyri were rediscovered in 1967, he felt that the translation made by the Egyptologists disproved the Book of Abraham and the anti-Negro doctrine found in its pages. Like Grant Heward, he began to publish his dissenting view on the anti-Negro doctrine and the Book of Abraham, and he was disfellowshipped, and they threatened to excommunicate him if he didn't shut up, and he didn't so they excommunicated It was after his excommunication that John William Fitzgerald wrote his article comparing the Watergate cover-up to that found in the Mormon church. Two weeks after Fitzgerald's article appeared, two articles attacking his position appeared in the Salt Lake Tribune. In one of these articles, Verl A. Workman wrote, the church does not cover up like the Watergate affair. Very succinct, straightforward, and completely wrong. So I'm going to skip the strange account of the 1831 first vision, uh, or the 18, yeah, I, I have talked other in other videos about that. What I want to get to on page six, seven, and eight, and nine in their Mormonism like Watergate is their discussion of a suppressed 1831 revelation. Now, this becomes just more evidence that this has become the church's method of handling history. They suppress the parts they don't like. They revise the parts they don't like. They change stuff, they add stuff in order to make it appear either more glorious or less nefarious than it really was. And that's called cheating. That won't get you any good grades in any college course whatsoever, but they don't care about that. All they want is the truth. Their whitewashed truth. Recently, a revelation given by Joseph Smith, which was suppressed for over, over 140 years, has come to light. This revelation completely destroys Dr. Nibley's argument that the Mormon church does not suppress documents. According to Mormon leaders, this revelation was supposed to have been given to Joseph Smith in 8 1831, that's the critical date, they maintain that it supports the doctrine of polygamy and that it is a 
forerunner to the revelation on polygamy, which became Doctrine and Covenants section 132. It is a forerunner of the revelation given in July 12th, 1843, and that became DNC 132. Joseph Fielding Smith, who was the LDS historian, said, the exact date I cannot give you when this principle of plural marriage was first revealed to Joseph Smith, but I do know that there was a revelation given in July 1831 in the presence of Oliver Cowdery, W.W. W. Phelps, and others in Missouri, in which the Lord made this principle known through the prophet Joseph Smith. So in 1943, Joseph Fielding Smith told Fawn Brody about this revelation, but he wouldn't let her see it. <laughs> Here's what he's, she's described it as. Joseph S. Smith, Jr., the present historian of the Utah Church, asserted to me in 1943 that a revelation foreshadowing polygamy had been written in 1831, but that it had never been published. In conformity with the church policy, however, he would not permit the manuscript, which he acknowledged to be in possession of the church library, to be examined. Why not? That's what I want to explore. This is what the Tanners explored. The amazing thing is Michael Marquart also began getting wind of this, and I made a telephone call to Michael, and I asked him if I could record parts of our conversation, which I will share with you. I just talked to him this morning on the phone. Mr. Marquardt began to do research with regard to the 1831 revelation. He found that some Mormon scholars had copies of this revelation, but they had had to promise not to make any copies. Finally, Mr. Marquardt learned what appears to be the real reason why the revelation was suppressed, that the revelation commanded the Mormons to marry the Indians in order to make them more white and delightsome. The blatant racism of marrying the Indians in polygamous marriages in order to fulfill the Book of Mormon prophecy of turning the dark, filthy savages into civilized, white, and delightsome, better people is the point of this 1831 revelation. And it is based on the cursed with the same skin of darkness and loathsomeness that the Lamanites had in the Book of Mormon. And so they were trying to fulfill the prophecy of turning them into white and delightsome. President Kimball ludicrously talked about that in the conference of October 1960, where he said, I am looking at the Indians, and they really are becoming more white and delights in people now. They are lighter shades of dark, and now they're becoming whiter. And it's glorious. We are so seeing the fulfillment of Book of Mormon prophecy. And then later on, they did the Indian placement program, where they took the Indian kids and put them into white people's homes to take the culture of the Indians away and convert them to Mormonism, and yet continue turning them into white and delightsome people. And of course, from the civil rights movement in the 1960s, that program bombed. It fell apart. 
So while Spencer W. Kimball seems to feel that the Indians are to be, be made white by the power of God, which is what he attributed to in the conference. Michael Marquardt learned that Joseph Smith's 1831 revelation says they are to be made white through intermarriage with the Mormons. And it is because of this fact, the Mormon leaders seem to feel that it was necessary to keep this revelation from their people. Uh, just like Watergate, right? There, and this is part of the revelation. I'm not going to read the whole thing because there's a whole lot of context and, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, verily, verily, saith the Lord, your Redeemer, even Jesus Christ, the light and the life of the world. He cannot discern with your natural eyes the design and purposes of the Lord your God in bringing you thus far into the wilderness for a trial of your faith. And on and on and on, I'm going to just take you to the meat of the revelation. It goes on for an entire column. So, verily I say unto you, you are laying the foundation of a great work for the salvation of as many as will believe and repent and obey the ordinances of the gospel and continue faithful to the end. For as I live, saith the Lord, so shall they live. Verily I say unto you that the wisdom of man in his fallen state knoweth not the purposes and the privileges of my holy priesthood, but ye shall know when ye receive a fullness by reason of the anointing. For it is my will that in time ye shall take unto you wives of the Lamanites and Nephites, that their posterity may become white, delightsome, and just. This is supposed to be coming from Jesus. For even now their females are more virtuous than the Gentiles. Gird up your loins and be prepared for the mighty work with which the Lord is preparing the world for my second coming to meet the tribes of Israel, etc., etc., etc. You get the point. About three years after this was given, I asked Brother Joseph, oh, now, this was reported by William W. Phelps, which Mike McQuart talks about in our conversation. Now, and Phelps also says that about three years after this was given, I asked Brother Joseph privately how we that are mentioned in the Revelation could take wives from the natives as we were all married men, and he replied instantly, we will do it in the same manner that Abraham took Hagar and Keturah and Jacob took Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah. By revelation, the saints of the Lord are always directed by revelation. So now, according to what Michael Marquardt could learn, the original revelation is preserved in the vault in the LDS Church Historian's Library. The paper on which it was written has the appearance of being very old. There is a second copy of the revelation in the Church Historian's Library. This appears to be a letter from W.W. W. Phelps to Brigham Young. It was dated August 12, 1861. This is a revelation of Joseph Smith given over the boundary west of Jefferson or Jackson County, Missouri on Sunday morning, July 17th, 1839, it, sorry, 1831, when seven elders, Joseph Smith Jr., Oliver Cowdery, W.W. W. Phelps, Martin Harris, Joseph Coe, Zeba Peterson, and Joshua Lewis 
united their hearts in prayer in a private place, and then came that revelation that they were to marry the Lamanite women. We were to take wives from the natives, is the idea. So let me share this conversation I had with Mike Marquardt, because this is the Tanners, right? And as, as one of the original founders of Fair Mormon, yeah, I was one of the original three founders of Fair Mormon. And I, I basically, after, after a few years, I realized I cannot defend the indefensible anymore. Uh, and as an apologist for so many years, this comes as a shock. So I don't want to rely just on the tanners. So I contacted Mike Marquardt himself and I asked him his opinion. And I want to share a couple of excerpts of our conversation. I asked for his permission and he graciously granted Mike it. Mike Marquardt on the phone. And this is concerning the suppressed 1831 revelation of Joseph Smith saying that the brethren were going to go to the Lamanites to marry the Indians to make them a white and delightsome people through marriage. And the Tanners, I've got Mike on the phone. How you doing, Mike? Doing very well. Good. So I've asked Mike to tell me his side of this because the Tanners mentioned Mike in this. This is Mormonism like Watergate. And they mentioned that Mike had found a microfilm copy of the original paper in the Mormon Church's genealogical library where on June 7th, 1831, he received a revelation in which Ezra Booth was to go to to Missouri and in another area, Mike, they mentioned that you had uh, where is it? They mentioned that Hiram Andrus was publishing some stuff but suppressing it and that disturbed you so they say Mike Marquart has obtained an accurate copy of the Revelation and he began doing research of the 1831 Revelation and you were told that there were copies, but you weren't allowed to see those copies. So you did some digging on your own. Uh, what did you find? How did you go about your research? Well, I found that different scholars had basically at, at, at that time a type copy of the revelation that was recorded by William W. Phelps. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. That would be 1861 letter, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, and, of course, Phelps did mention, I believe, in 1845 that there was a revelation. And Ezra Booth, who was actually there in Missouri, mentions that there was a revelation. Uh, it was dealing with... Uh, definitely going to the Lamanites, which was the natives, uh, since they got kicked out of the uh, area where the Lamanites were to preach, so they had to preach to the whites. Yeah. Uh, there, there is a question of whether it was for intermarriage at that time, but um, they wanted to, you know, preach the and bring the Book of Mormon 
to the the Lamanites. They, they considered them, that they were Lamanites, and, and anyway, that got the you know, ideas going. Yeah, the way the, the way the Tanners are discussing this in their pamphlet, they're saying that Joseph Fielding Smith uh, challenged one of the uh, people. Uh, they say this on page uh, six. They say Joseph Fielding Smith says the. And I've already read that to you. Let me share another quick excerpt with Mike. One of the documents that was handwritten by William Phelps. One was a letter that he wrote to Brigham Young, and another was just a copy of the document. It was uh, 1861. So whatever Phelps recollected, uh, you know, it was there. Yeah. Yeah, he was talking about the... Uh... Sorry, I was looking at something. He was talking about the, uh, it was his letter to Brigham Young, Phelps was, in 1861, where he confirmed the idea that the, the revelation was given that they were going to have to live polygamy. That's just the way it was going to be. And one of the principles of that polygamy was that they were going to intermarry with the Indians, so... That's fascinating yeah. that you also were looking into that. Did you have trouble getting uh, many of the documents when you were looking into some of this stuff? Well, all this is before the Internet. And so you um, had to do the legwork and talk to people and do all the hard work of locating these documents that were mentioned by you know, other people like Joseph Fielding Smith, but you know, how could you get a copy to examine them and to know what they said? Yeah. So it took, it took a little while, but then I usually share my material. So uh, it was the time of the Watergate deal. So, let me get one more. I've got one more partial. That's true. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I just wanted to get your input on this so that we can see that there's more than one person besides the Tanners who are uh, studying history and finding that the history as given by several of the LDS scholars and historians such as Hiram Mandris and Joseph Fielding Smith uh, was not given the full context. One, because it's probably pretty embarrassing to them. I mean, to intermarry among the Indians to turn them into white and delights them and all that jazz, yeah, that would be pretty controversial like you've mentioned. But on the other hand, you know, John D. Lee in his journal says that they were, they were, uh, I gave Mokita's chief a young horse for an Indian girl some eight years. And then it cut me off. Uh, the Mormons were even buying Indian children <laughs> from the Indians. It's crazy. And I have that in some of the journals. If you think the Tanners are lying, I have that. And I will share that with you in this podcast. So, so that was Mike McQuart. And the idea is, and he said at the time in 
when they first were there in 1831, Mike McQuart is not sure that they were going to begin intermarrying, but that principle was given to them. And then it was given again in 1825 or 1845, he said, and so on and so forth. So it's very interesting that uh, I wanted to get to this Dr. Hiram Anders. Now, he was one of the big BYU scholars in the 1970s. He had uh, God, man in the universe, the kingdom of, of God, and so on and so forth. He was at BYU. He actually quotes from the Revelation, but he completely skips over the theme of marrying the Indians in order to turn them into white and delightsome people. And they note him doing that. And then Ezra Booth confirms the revelation, regardless of when the revelation was actually written on paper, we have found definitive historical proof that such a revelation was given in 1831. The proof is derived from a letter written by Ezra Booth and published in the Ohio Star. This is what Michael Marquardt was referring to only five months after the revelation was given. He says, in addition to this, and this is Ezra Booth, and to cooperate with it, it has been made known by revelation that it will be pleasing to the Lord should they form a matrimonial alliance with the natives. And by this means, the elders who comply with the things so pleasing to the Lord and for which Lord has promised to bless those who do it abundantly, gain a residence in the Indian territory, independent of the agent. It has been made known to me who has left his wife in the state of New York, that he is entirely free from his wife and he has at liberty to take him a wife from among the Lamanites. It was easily perceived that this permission was perfectly suited to his desires. I have frequently heard him state that the Lord had made it known to him that he is as free from his wife as from any other woman. And the only crime I've ever heard alleged against her is that she was violently opposed to Mormonism. But before this contemplated marriage can be carried into effect, he must return to the state of New York and settle his business and then go back out among the Indians and start marrying the Indians. Very interesting. So the idea is bleaching the Lamanites. And this is horrendously racist. But this is what the church and its historians at BYU did not want people to know about in the 1830 revelation. They're just trying to confirm that Joseph Smith was not living in adultery because he was given a revelation as early as 1831. See, it's typical apologetic bullshit how they handle their history here. Here are the Lamanites. Now, this is Brigham Young who said this. In the Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, page 143. Here are the Lamanites, another example. Their wickedness was not so great as those who slew the Son of God. They sunk into wickedness and evil principles, the most degrading, and have become loathsome and vile. Still, the curse will be removed from them, and they will become a white and delightsome people. That was the goal, because that's what the Book of Mormon taught. And that was the Mormon doctrine. The way they implemented to fulfill that prophecy was marrying them in polygamous relationships.
The fact that the Mormon apostle Orson Hyde encouraged marriage with the Lamanites is verified in the diary of Hosea Stout, and I have that diary. In fact, I I will read how the tanner said. Elder Hyde held a meeting in the evening. In the discourse, he recommended the marrying of squaws in the most positive and strong terms, and particularly immediately taking Mary, an old haggard mummy-looking one who had been here all winter long, and it made the brethren mock and make merry of the whole idea. But they did marry off one of the Mormons to this uh, Indian squaw. That is in Hosea Stout's journal, and I do have that. This is the Journal on the Mormon Frontier, the diary of Hosea Stout. And this is Tuesday, 9th of May, 1854. I will read straight from the historical record. This is on page 516 of volume two. John Appleby organized the county of Green River by appointing Robert Alexander Clerk of Probate Court, William A. Hickman, Sheriff, also Assessor and Collector, as well as Prosecuting Attorney. He also appointed other requisite officers. Elder Hyde held a meeting in the evening. In the discourse, he recommended the marrying of squaws in the most positive and strong terms, and particularly the immediate taking Mary, an old haggard mummy-looking one who had been here all winter. I mean, this is the source that the Tanners were showing that the Mormons were doing that. The Tanners quote this. They are not suppressing it. They are not distorting it. They are not misrepresenting the historical issue or the context, that is what the Mormons were doing. The Tanners had it right. It is the Mormons who left all of this material out in order to justify polygamy. But they, did, they were embarrassed as hell, rightly so in the manner in which Jesus Christ supposedly told Joseph Smith on how to turn the Indians white and delights them. The very principle of judging them in that manner is heinously racist. It is appalling, and yet, there you go. There's the early Mormon view. John D. Lee, in his journal, whom they also, the Tanners also utilize John D. Lee. And I have this, this is the very famous John D. Lee book by Juanita Brooks. On page 263, mentions on October 11th that there were also two Indian girls, Jacob Hamblin's Indian wife, Eliza, and Ira Hatch's Indian wife. So this is further evidence in the John D. Lee journals that the Mormons were obeying the revelation. Historically, we have the evidence that that is what they were doing. So the really crazy thing is, since Brigham Young did not publish the 1831 revelation, 
the Mormon people were somewhat divided over the issue of marrying the Indians. According to Juanita Brooks, Marion J. Shelton wrote the following to Brigham Young in a letter dated December 18, 1858. As this is Sunday, we had quite an interesting day in meeting. The great and all-absorbing question of amalgamation with the natives was spoken of by length by Brother Freem, one of our 70s. He holds forth that it is our duty as Latter-day Saints to take the Lamanite women to wife and by that means make them our fast friends. On March 4, 1863, Brigham Young wrote a letter to Jacob Hamblin, and here's what he told Hamblin. I have written to Brother E. Snow in relation to marrying Moki girls, informing him that the brethren were at liberty to do so but that in case a person at the time had a wife, the parties would have to come here to have the ceremony performed. Otherwise, they can be married there. That is in the Utah Historical Quarterly. And, yeah, further in John D. Lee's journal, they say he married a squaw to H. Barney in September 1858. And Lee recorded on the night of the 18th, I was notified to appear before Bishop Davis to answer the charge of being accused of marrying a squaw to H. Barney, contrary to the order of the PH. I don't know what that means. Uh, they said it was a sham marriage, and he justified the marriage through the bishop's council. And so that's interesting. Lee said that in 1859, the Mormon apostle, Amasa Lyman, advised him to marry his Indian girls, Alice and Alnora, married to me by Jacob Hamblin, in order to throw a shield of protection around them. And he considered them capable of understanding the nature of a marriage covenant, etc. Under the date of May 29, 1859, John D. Lee recorded that I also gave Mokitish chief a young horse for an Indian girl some eight years of age, also traded for a buckskin. Juanita Brooks says that the traffic in Indian children had been going on for nearly a century. Wow. They were trafficking the Indian children to help turn them into white and delights them. Is it any wonder they suppressed this? That, that, that's astonishing, isn't it? It's just amazing. In 1857, John Hyde Jr., made the following comments. Although Smith, speaking of the Indians, in his Book of Mormon, page 66, says, Cursed shall be the seed of him that mixes with their seed, for they shall be cursed with the same cursing. Brigham now teaches that the way God has revealed for the purification of the Indians and making them a white and delightsome people, as Joseph prophesied, is by us taking the Indian squaws for wives. Accordingly, several of these tawny beauties have been already sealed to some of the Mormon authorities. I mean, if that doesn't flip you out, I don't know what will, right? So I have much more in the 
Richard Van Wagner, Mormon polygamy. He verifies that the 1831 revelation was talked about and given, and that they were to marry the wives of the Lamanites and Nephites, the Indians, in order to turn them white and delights them. I also have it in George D. Smith's. I've got two deals here. Mormon Nauvoo polygamy, but we called it celestial marriage. And, of course, this is on page five. I'll read this to you because it's so important. Remarkably, Smith's role in introducing polygamy in Nauvoo has been largely excised from the official telling of LES history. Yeah. Who's the bad guy here? You know, this is what they blamed the Tanners for doing, miscontexting history. And yet they themselves are the guilty parties. And they admitted that in the official church essay on polygamy, which they put on their official website, LDS.org. You really ought to read that essay. Neither the Mormon founder nor any of the Nauvoo saints publicly acknowledged their multiple wives before Joseph's death. So they're going around marrying multiple wives, lying through their teeth to everybody about it, for one thing. Smith's writings, such as his extant diaries in the official history of the church, mostly edited after his death, fail to mention his marriage to Louisa Beeman in 1841 or any of his other 30-plus wives. That's how many wives he had. Official church texts have ignored polygamy's role in the death of the prophet and the westward migration that was forced upon the church. In an entry on plural marriage in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, Daniel Backman and Ronald K. Esplin, both LDS educators, briefly mentioned the rumors of plural marriage in the 1830s and 1840s, but only obliquely refer to the teaching of new marriage and family arrangements. Such revisionism continues today. They haven't stopped. This is the Mormon method, right? This is what we're witnessing. When asked about polygamy on national television in 1998, LDS President Gordon B. Hinckley dismissed its historical importance, positing that when our people came west, 1846 and 1847, they permitted polygamy on a restricted scale. He failed to acknowledge how important the law of celestial marriage had been for the church's founder and his followers. Particularly revealing still was how the church president phrased his answer to exclude the entire pre-Utah period of church history. He made it clear he would not welcome any probing into the life of Joseph Smith and his wives or of Smith's requirement that others embrace the practice suppression of history, the very thing they, distortion of history, the very thing they accuse the Tanners of doing, they themselves continue to do. This is Todd Compton's magnificent study in Sacred Loneliness, page 10. The church president apparently believed in complete salvation, in Mormon terminology, exaltation, including the concept of deification, 
uh, this is Joseph Smith, why he had 33 wives, depended on the extent of a man's family seal to him in this life. Benjamin Johnson, a brother of Smith's plural wife, Almira Johnson, wrote, the first command was to multiply, and the prophet taught us that dominion and power in the great future would be commensurate with the number of wives, children, and friends that we inherit here and that our great mission to earth was to organize a nucleus of heaven to take with us, to the increase to which there would be no end. So the emphasis on increase echoes the Abrahamic promise in which God promised Abraham that his posterity would be more numerous than all the stars of the heavens or the sands of the seashore. Early Mormons taught that the doctrine of plural marriage was revealed to Joseph Smith while he was engaged in the work of translation of the scriptures. And historian Daniel Backman concludes that it was specifically the translation of Genesis, the Abraham passages, that caused Joseph to pray about polygamy in February 1831 and receive his first revelations on the topic. And then, yeah, more of the same. He confirms the W.W. Phelps. This is on page 27 of Todd Compton's book in Sacred Loneliness. He confirms the 1861 letter of W.W. Phelps to Brigham Young that Joseph Smith received a revelation that they were to intermar intermarry among the Lamanites. So here's my point in bringing all this up. Todd Compton was a faithful Latter-day Saint when he wrote this book. The fallout of this book just shocked the hell out of him. He did not realize it was going to be so vehemently hated. And I'm not quite sure if he's still active in the church or not. But, you know, the, the Mormon history has been so whitewashed that when the actual history comes out, the Mormons can't even recognize it. That's how good of a job the church has been at changing the history and then turning around and accusing people like the Tanners of doing so, right? But there's a valid historian, Todd Compton, another historian, more Nabu polygamy, but we call it celestial marriage, says the same information and another Mormon in Mormon polygamy of history, Richard Van Wagner, also has shown that that is accurate. The diaries of John D. Lee that I possess also verify what the Tanner said and the Hosea Stout journals on the Mormon frontier. There's two copies. It's kind of cool how they did the spine of this because when you put it together, you see them. That's kind of cool. When you take it apart, there's one half and one half. So that's kind of fun way to do the cover. But Hosea Stout also verifies that. So my point in this is simple. We have no historical justification for smearing the critics, the historians who bring out the full picture when it is the church who has left out the full picture and then accused those who wish to see the full history of being evil or misled and actually excommunicating them. That's not just. That's not right. That's evil. That's evil. And so the tanners have been verified again and again and again. They did win this war 
because the church's own essays on so many topics, the polygamy, the blacks and the priesthood, the book of Abraham, all of these topics, the Adam God, all of these topics, the essays put on the church's website. And no, it's not anti-Mormons who hacked the website. That's how incredibly whitewashed the Mormon church's history has become, is because Mormons on the internet were alarmed when the essays showed up on the church site because they thought the anti-Mormons had hacked the church's website and they were trying to get in contact with the church to warn them that the anti-Mormons have put their crap on your site when it was in fact a notice, none of the essays are signed, <laughs> right? The first presidency didn't dare sign them because, of course, they're admitting to the fact that they have really not been honest with their own history. So they had Mormon scholars write these essays. So no one is able to be pinned down on who's responsible for these essays. And yet they are part of the new Mormon attitude of full disclosure. And that's what the Joseph Smith Papers Project is now trying to do as well. Finally. But let's make no mistake about it. And I heard Sandra Tanner on a brand new John DeLynn podcast with uh, with uh, John DeLynn on Mormon Stories uh, where she said the, the real credit for getting the Mormon church to finally grow up and mature and face history squarely instead of cheating and lying and, and threatening and cajoling everyone else and excommunicating everybody for finding the fuller truth, the Tanners won the argument. They really did. They did not cheat or lie about the information that they had in their booklet, Mormonism Like Watergate. Mormonism has acted like Watergate from day one, as far as that goes. Joseph Smith hiding polygamy himself, etc. And it goes on and on and on and on, all the way up to right now with this SEC fine of the Mormons for doing what? suppressing how much money they have, lying to the government, the public, and the church, and it's your money, <laughs> you Mormons. The church has never changed its method of operation. The real question is, is this the honest and actual Lord's way? And I suspect that every Mormon deep down, even though they're denying any wrongdoing with the church on this SEC scandal, who are defending the church no matter what, I suspect deep down, you know better. You're either just too scared or you're too willing to support the fraudulent behavior of the pattern of Mormonism and the day's coming where you'll be strong enough to take a much better stand for actual truth. If 
you value it. There's plenty of us out here who actually do.